Chapter 15. A Happy Return Before I left Miss Maddie at Cranford, everything had been comfortably arranged for her. Even Mrs. Jameson's approval of her selling tea had been gained. That oracle had taken a few days to consider whether by doing so Miss Maddie would forfeit her right to the privileges of society in Cranford. I think she had some little idea of mortifying Lady Glenmire by the decision she gave at last, which was to this effect— that whereas a married woman takes her husband's rank by the strict laws of precedence, an unmarried woman retains the station her father occupied. So Cranford was allowed to visit Miss Maddy, and whether allowed or not, it intended to visit Lady Glenmire. <clears throat> but what was our surprise, our dismay, when we learnt that Mr. and Mrs. Hoggins were returning on the following Tuesday? Mrs. Hoggins! Had she absolutely dropped her title, and so, in a spirit of bravado, cut the aristocracy to become a Hoggins? She, who might have been called Lady Glenmire to her dying day. <clears throat> Mrs. Jameson was pleased. She said it only convinced her of what she had known from the first, that the creature had a low taste. But the creature looked very happy on Sunday at church. Nor did we see it necessary to keep our veils down on that side of our bonnets on which Mr. and Mrs. Hoggins sat as Mrs. Jameson did, thereby missing all the smiling glory of his face and all the becoming blushes of hers. I am not sure if Martha and Jim looked more radiant in the afternoon when they too made their first appearance. Mrs. Jameson soothed the turbulence of her soul by having the blinds of her windows drawn down as if for a funeral on the day when Mr. and Mrs. Hoggins received callers, and it was with some difficulty that she was prevailed upon to continue the St. James's Chronicle so indignant was she with its having inserted the announcement of the marriage. Miss Maddy's sale went off famously. She retained the furniture of her sitting-room and bedroom, the former of which she was to occupy till Martha could meet with a lodger who might wish to take it, and into this sitting-room and bedroom she had to cram all sorts of things, which were, the auctioneer assured her, brought in for her at the sale by an unknown friend, <clears throat> bought in for her at the sale by an unknown friend. I have I always suspected Mrs. Fitzadam of this, but she must have been an accessory. Who knew what articles were particular? Sorry, I always suspected Mrs. Fitzadams of this, but she must have had an accessory. Who knew what articles were particularly regarded by Miss Maddy on account of their associations with her earlier days? <clears throat> the rest of the house looked rather bare, to be sure, all except one tiny bedroom of which my father allowed me to purchase the furniture for my occasional use in, in case of Miss Maddy's illness. I had expended my own small store in buying all manner of comfits and lozenges in order to tempt the little people whom Miss Maddy loved so much to come about her. Tea and bright green canisters and comfits and tumblers, Miss Maddy and I quite felt quite proud as we looked round us on the evening before the shop was to be opened. Martha had scoured the boarded floor to a clean, a white cleanness, and it was adorned with a brilliant piece of oilcloth on which customers were to stand before the table counter. The wholesome smell of plaster and whitewash pervaded the apartment. A very small Matilda Jenkins license to sell tea was hidden under the lintel of the new door, and two boxes of tea, with cabalistic inscriptions all over them, stood ready to disgorge their contents into the canisters. Miss Matty, as I ought to have mentioned before, had some scruples of conscience at selling tea when there was already Mr. Johnson in the town, who, who included it among his numerous commodities. 
Before she could quite reconcile herself to the adoption of her new business, she had trotted down to his shop, unknown to me, to tell him of the project that was entertained, and to inquire if it was likely to injure his business. My father called this idea of hers great nonsense, and wondered how tradespeople were to get on if there was to be a continual consulting of each other's interests, which would put a stop to all competition directly. And perhaps it would not have done in Drumble, <clears throat> but in Cranford it answered very well. For not only did Mr. Johnson kindly put at rest all Miss Matty's scruples and fear of entering his business, but... I have reason to know he repeatedly sent customers to her, saying that the teas he kept were of a common kind, but that Miss Jenkins had all the choice sorts. And expensive tea is a very favorite luxury with well-to-do tradespeople and rich farmers' wives, who turn up their noses at the Kanju and Song Chong prevalent at many tables of gentility, and will have nothing else than gunpowder and pico for themselves. But to return to Miss Matty, it was really very pleasant to see how her unselfishness and simple sense of justice called out the same good qualities in others. She never seemed to think any one would oppose, impose upon her, because she should be so grieved to do it to them. I have heard her put a stop to the asseverations of the man who brought her coals by quietly saying, I am sure you would be sorry to bring me wrong weight, and if the coals were short measure that time, I don't believe they ever were again. People would have felt as much ashamed of presuming on her good faith as they would have done on that of a child. But my father says, such simplicity might be very well in Cranford, but would never do in the world. And I fancy the world must be very bad, for with all my father's suspicion of every one with whom he has dealings, in despite of all his many precautions, he lost upwards of a thousand pounds by roguery only last year. I stayed just long enough to establish Miss Maddie in her new mode of life, and to pack up the library which the rector had purchased. He had written a very kind letter to Miss Maddie, saying how glad he should be to take a library so well selected as he knew that the late Mr. Jenkins's must have been, at any valuation put upon them. And when she agreed to this, with a touch of sorrowful gladness that they would go back to the rectory, and be arranged on the accustomed walls once more, he sent word that he feared that he had not room for them all, and perhaps Miss Matty would kindly allow him to leave some volumes on her shelves. But, but Miss Matty said that she had her Bible and Johnson's Dictionary, and should not have much time for reading, she was afraid. Still, I retained a few books out of consideration for the rector's kindness. The money which he had paid, and that produced by the sale, was partly expended in the stock of tea, and part of it was invested against a rainy day, i.e. old age or illness. It was but a small sum, it is true, and it occasioned a few evasions of truth and white lies, all of which I think very wrong indeed, in theory, and would rather not put them in practice, for we knew Miss Matty would be perplexed as to her duty if she were aware of any little reserve fund being made for her while the debt to the bank remained unpaid. <clears throat> Moreover, she had never been told of the way in which her friends were contributing to pay the rent. I should have liked to tell her this, but the mystery of the affair gave a piquancy to their deed of kindness which the ladies were unwilling to give up, and at first Martha had, no, had to shirk many a perplexed question as to her ways and means of living in such a house, but by and by Miss Maddie's prudent uneasiness sank down into acquiescence with the existing arrangement. I left Miss Maddie with a good heart. Her sales of tea during the first two days had surpassed my most sanguine expectations. The whole country round seemed to be all out of tea at once. 
The only alteration I could have desired in Miss Maddie's way of doing business was that she should not have so plaintively entreated some of her customers not to buy green tea, running it down a slow poison, sure to destroy the nerves and produce all manner of evil. Their pertinacity in taking it, in spite of all her warnings, distressed her so much that I really thought she would relinquish the sale of it, and so lose half her custom, and I was driven to my wit's end for instances of longevity entirely attributable to a persevering use of green tea. But the final argument which settled the question was a happy reference of mine to the train oil and tallow candles, which the Eskimo not only enjoy but digest. After that she acknowledged that one man's meat might be another man's poison, and contented herself thenceforward with an occasional remonstrance, which she thought the purchaser oh, sorry, when she thought the purchaser was too young and innocent to be acquainted with the evil effects green tea produced on some constitutions, and an an habitual sigh when people old enough to choose more wisely would prefer it. I went over from Drumble once a quarter at least to settle the accounts and see after the necessary business letters. And speaking of letters, I began to be very much ashamed of remembering my letter to the Aga Jenkins and very glad I had never named my writing to any one. I had hoped the letter was lost. No answer came. No sign was made. About a year after Miss Maddie set up shop, I received one of Martha's hieroglyphics, begging me to come to Cranford very soon. I was afraid that Miss Maddie was ill and went off that very afternoon and took Martha by surprise when she saw me on opening the door. We went into the kitchen, as usual, to have our confidential conference, and then Martha told me she was expecting her confinement very soon, in a week or two, and she did not think Miss Maddie was aware of it, and she wanted me to break the news to her, for indeed, Miss, continued Martha, crying hysterically, I'm afraid she won't approve of it, I'm sh and I'm sure I don't know who's to take care of her, as she should be taken care of when I am laid up. I comforted Martha by telling her I would remain till she was about again, and only wished she had told me her reason for the sudden summons, as then I would have brought the requisite stock of clothes. But Martha was so tearful and tender-spirited, and unlike her usual self, that I said as little as possible about myself, and endeavored rather to comfort Martha under all the probable and possible misfortunes which came crowding upon her imagination. I then stole out of the house door and made my appearance as if I were a customer in the shop just to take Miss Maddie by surprise and gain an idea of how she looked in her new situation. It was warm May weather, so only a little half-door was closed, and Miss Maddie sat behind her counter, knitting an elaborate pair of garters, elaborate they seemed to me, but the difficult stitch was no weight upon her mind, for she was singing in a low voice to herself as her needles went rapidly in and out. I call it singing, but I dare a musician would not <clears throat> excuse me. But I dare say a musician would not use that word to the tuneless yet sweet humming of the low worn voice. I found out from the words, far more than from the attempts at the tune, that it was the old hundredth she was crooning to herself. But the quiet, continuous sound told of content, and gave me a peaceful feeling, as I stood in the street just outside the door quite in harmony with that soft May morning. I went in. At first she did not catch who it was, and stood up as if to serve me. But in another minute watchful pussy had clutched her knitting, which was dropped in her eager joy at seeing me. I found, after we had had a little conversation, 
that it was as Miss Martha said, that it was as Martha said, and that Miss Maddie had no idea of the approaching household event. So I thought I would let her, I would let things take their course, secure that I, when I went to her with the baby in my arms, I should obtain that forgiveness for Martha, which she was needlessly frightening herself into believing that Miss Maddie would withhold, under some notion that the new claimant would require attentions from its mother, that it would be faithless treason to Miss Maddie to render. But I was right. I think that must be an hereditary quality, for my father says he is scarcely ever wrong. One morning, within a week after I arrived, I went to call Miss Maddie with a little bundle of flannel in my arms. She was very much awestruck when I showed her what it was, and asked for her spectacles off the dressing table, and looked at it curiously, with a sort of tender wonder at its small perfection of parts. She could not banish the thought of the surprise all day, but went about on tiptoe, and was very silent. But she stole up to see Martha, and they both cried with joy, and she got into a complimentary speech to Jim, who did not know how to get out of it again, and was only extricated from her dilemma by the sound of the shop bell, which was an equal relief to the shy, proud, honest Jim, who shook my hand so vigorously when I congratulated him that I think I feel the pain of it yet. I had a busy life while Martha was laid up. <clears throat> I attended on Miss Maddie and prepared her meals. I cast up her accounts and examined into the state of her canisters and tumblers. I helped her, too, occasionally in the shop, and it gave me no small amusement and sometimes a little easy uneasiness to watch her ways there. If a little child came in to ask for an ounce of almond comfits, and four of the large kind, which Miss Maddie sold weighed that much, she always added one more, by, may, by way of make-weight, as she called it, although the scale was handsomely turned before, and when I remonstrated against this, her reply was, the little things like it so much. There was no use in telling her that the fifth comfit weighed a quarter of an ounce, and made every sale into a loss to her pocket. So I remembered the green tea, and winged my shaft with a feather out of her own plumage. I told her how unwholesome almond comfits were, and how ill excess in them might make the little... How... And how ill excess in them might make the little children. This argument produced some effect, for henceforward, instead of the fifth comfit, she always told them to hold out their tiny palms, into which she shook either peppermint or ginger lozenges, as a preventative to the dangers that might, that might arise from the previous sale. Altogether, the lozenge trade conducted on these principles did not promise to be remunerative, but I was happy to find she had made more than twenty pounds during the last year by her sale of, sales of tea, and moreover, that now she was accustomed to it, she did not dislike the employment, which brought her into kindly intercourse with many of the people round about. She gave them good weight, <clears throat> sorry for all of my few listeners, I am not doing well reading today. If she gave them good weight, they, in their turn, brought many a little country present to the old rector's daughter, a cream cheese, a few new-laid eggs, a little fresh ripe fruit, a bunch of flowers. The counter was quite loaded with these offerings sometimes, as she told me. As for Cranford in general, it was still going on, much as usual. The Jameson-Hoggins feud still raged, if a feud it could be called, when only one side cared much about it. Mr. and Mrs. Hoggins were very happy together, and like most very happy people, were quite ready to be friendly. Indeed, Mrs. Hoggins was really desirous to be restored to Mrs. Jameson's good graces because of the former intimacy. 
But Mrs. Jameson considered their very happiness an insult to the Glenmire family, to which she still had the honor to belong, and she doggedly refused and rejected every advance. Mr. Moliner, like a faithful clansman, espoused his mistress's side with ardor. If he saw either Mr. or Mr. Hoggins, he would cross the street, and appear absorbed in the contemplation of life in general, and his own path in particular, until he had passed by them. Miss Pole used to amuse herself with wondering what in the world Mrs. Jameson would do if either she or Mr. Moliner or any other member of her household was taken ill. She could hardly have the face to call in Mr. Hoggins after the way she had behaved to them. Miss Pole grew quite impatient for some disposition or accident to befall Mrs. Jameson or her dependents, in order that Cranford might see how she would act under the perplexing circumstances. Martha was beginning to go about again, and I had already fixed a limit, not very far distant, to my visit, when one afternoon, as I was sitting in the shop parlor with Miss Matty, I remember the weather was colder now than it had been in May, three weeks before, and we had a fire, and kept the door fully closed. We saw a gentleman go slowly past the window, and then stand opposite to the door, as of looking out for the name which we had so carefully hidden. He took out a double eyeglass and peered about for some time before he could discover it. Then he came in, and all of a sudden it flashed across me that it was the Aga himself, for his clothes had an out-of-the-way foreign cut about them, and his face was deep bran as if tanned and retanned by the sun. His complexion contrasted oddly with his plentiful snow-white hair. His eyes were dark and piercing, and he had, and he had an odd way of contracting them, and puckering up his cheeks into innumerable wrinkles when he looked earnestly at objects. He did so to Miss Maddy when he first came in. His glance had first caught and lingered a little upon me, but then turned with the peculiar searching look I have described to Miss Maddy. She was a little fluttered and nervous, but no more so when, than she always was when any man came into her shop. She thought he would probably have a note, or a sovereign at least, for which she would have liked to give, which she would have, would have to give change, which was an operation she very much disliked to perform. But the present customer stood opposite to her, without asking for anything, only looking fixedly at her as he drummed upon the table with his fingers, just for all the world as Miss Jenkins used to do. Miss Matty was on the point of asking him what he wanted, as she told me afterwards, when he turned sharp to me. Is your name, Mar is your name Mary Smith? Yes, said I. All my doubts as to his identity were set at rest, and I only wondered what he would say or do next, and how Miss Matty would stand the joyful shock of what he had to reveal. Apparently he was at a loss how to announce himself, for he looked round at last in search of something to buy, and so as to game time, as it happened, his eye caught on one of the almond comfits, and he boldly asked for a pound of those things. I doubt if Miss Matty had a whole pound in the shop, and besides this unusual magnitude of the order, she was distressed with the idea of the indigestion they would produce, taken in such unlimited quantities. She looked up to remonstrate. Something of tender relaxation in his face struck home to her heart. She said, It is, oh, oh, sir, can you be Peter? And trembled from head to foot. In a moment he was round the table and had her in his arms, sobbing the tearless cries of old age. I brought her a glass of wine, for indeed her color had changed so as to alarm me, and Mr. Peter, too. He kept saying, I have been too sudden for you, Maddie. I have, my little girl. I proposed that she should go at once up into the drawing-room and lie down on the sofa there. She looked wistfully at her brother, whose hand she had held tight, 
even when nearly fainting. But on assuring, but on his assuring her that he would not leave her, she allowed him to carry her upstairs. I thought that the best I could do was to run and put the kettle on the fire for early tea, and then to attend to the shop, leaving the brother and sister to exchange some of the many thousand things they must have to say. I had also to break the news to Martha, who received it with a burst, burst of tears which nearly infected me. She kept recovering herself to ask if I was sure it was indeed Miss Maddie's brother, for I had mentioned that he had gray hair, and she had always heard that he was a very handsome young man. Something of the same kind perplexed Miss Maddie at tea-time, when she was installed in the great easy-chair opposite to Mr. Jenkins's, in order to gaze her fill. She could hardly drink for looking at him, and as for eating, that was out of the question. "'I suppose hot climates age people very quickly,' said she, almost to herself. "'When you left Cranford, you had not a gray hair in your head.' "'But how many years ago is that?' said Mr. Peter, smiling. "'Ah, true, yes. I suppose you and I are getting old. "'But still I did not think we were so very old. "'But white hair is very becoming to you, Peter,' she continued, "'a, l a little afraid lest she had hurt him by revealing how his appearance had impressed her. "'I suppose I forgot dates too, Maddie, for what do you think I have brought for you from India?' I have an Indian muslin gown and a pearl necklace for you somewhere or other in my chest at Portsmouth. He smiled as if amused at the idea of the incongruity of his presence with the appearance of his sister, but this did not strike her all at once, while the elegance of the articles did. I could see that for a moment her imagination dwelt complacently on the idea of herself thus attired, and instinctively she put up her hand to her throat, that little delicate throat which, as Miss Pole had told me, had been one of her youthful charms but the hand met the folds of soft muslin, in which she was always swathed up to her chin, and the sensation recalled a sense of the unsuitableness of a pearl necklace to her age. She said, I'm afraid I'm too old, but it was very kind of you to think of it. They are just what I should have liked years ago, when I was young. So I thought, my little Maddie, I remembered your tastes. They were so like my dear mother's. At the mention of that name, the brother and sister clasped each other's hands yet more fondly, and although they were perfectly silent, I fancied they might have something to say if they were unchecked by my presence, and I got up to arrange my room for Mr. Peter's occupation that night, intending myself to share Miss Maddie's bed. But at my movement he started up. I must go and settle about a room at the George. My carpet-bag is there, too. No, said Miss Maddie in great distress. You must not go. Please, dear Peter, pray, Mary, oh, you must not go. She was so much agitated, agitated that we both promised everything she wished. Peter sat down again and gave her his hand, which for better security she held in both of hers, and I left the room to accomplish my arrangements. Long, long into the night, far, far into the morning, did Miss Mattie and I talk. She had much to tell me of her brother's life and adventures which she had communicated to her, as they had sat alone. She said that all was thoroughly clear to her, but I never quite understood the whole story, and when in after days I lost my awe of Mr. Peter enough to question him myself— he laughed at my curiosity and told me stories that sounded so very much like Baron Munchausen's that I was sure he was making fun of me. What I heard from Miss Maddy was that he had been a volunteer at the siege of Rangoon, had been taken prisoner by the Burmese, had sometime, somehow obtained favor and eventual freedom from knowing how to bleed the chief of the small tribe, tribe in some case of dangerous illness, that on his release from years of captivity he had had his letters returned from England with the ominous word dead marked upon them, believing himself to be 
and, believing himself to be the last of his race, he had settled down as an indigo planter, and had proposed to spend the remainder of his life in the country to whose inhabitants and models of life he had become habituated. When my letter had reached him, and with the odd vehemence which characterized him in age as it had done in youth, he had sold his land and all his possessions to the first purchaser, and had come home to the poor old sister, who was more glad and rich than any princess when she looked at him. She talked me to sleep at last, and then I was awakened by a slight sound at the door, for which she begged my pardon as she crept penitently into bed. But it seems that when I could no longer confirm her belief that the long-lost was really here, under the same roof, she had begun to fear, lest it was only a waking dream of hers, that there had never been a real Peter sitting by her all that blessed evening, but that the real Peter lay dead far away beneath some wild sea-wave or under some strange eastern tree. And so strong had been this nervous feeling of hers, that she was fain to get up and go and convince herself that he was really there by listening through the door to his even regular breathing. I don't like to call it snoring, but I heard it myself through two closed doors, and by and by it soothed Miss Maddie to sleep. I don't believe Mr. Peter came home from India as rich as a nabob. He even considered himself poor, but neither he nor Miss Maddie cared very much about that. At any rate, he had enough to live upon very genteelly at Cranford, he and Miss Maddie together, and a day or two after his arrival the shop was closed, while troops of little urchins gleefully awaited the showers of comfits and lozenges that came from time to time upon their faces as they stood up-gazing at Miss Maddie's drawing-room windows. Occasionally Miss Maddie would say to them, half-hidden behind the curtains, "'My dear children, don't make yourselves ill!' But a strong arm pulled her back, and a more rattling shower than ever succeeded. A part of the tea was sent in presents to the Cranford ladies, and some of it was distributed among the old people who remembered Mr. Peter in the days of his frolicsome youth. The Indian muslin gown was reserved for, Dar the, for darling Flora Gordon, Miss Jessie Brown's daughter. The Gordons had been on the continent for the last few years, but were now expected to return very soon, and Miss Maddie, in her sisterly pride, anticipated great delight in the joy of showing them Mr. Peter. The pearl necklace disappeared, and about that time many handsome and useful presents made their appearance in the households of Miss Pole and Mrs. Forrester, and some rare and delicate Indian ornaments graced the drawing-rooms of Mrs. Jameson and Mrs. Fitzadam. I myself was not forgotten. Among other things, I had the handsomest bound and best edition of Dr. Johnson's works that could be procured, and dear Miss Maddie, with tears in her eyes, begged me to consider it as a present from her sister as well as herself. In short, no one was forgotten, and what was more, how everyone, however insignificant, who had shown kindness to Miss Maddie at any time, was sure of Mr. Peter's cordial regard.'